big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we start today, we have some new patrons to thank. So shout out to Tina, Emma, Amanda, and Melissa. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to our notes, outtakes, bonus episodes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And if you want to support us in a different way, check out our merch store at the link in the episode description. This week, we're joined by Sequoia Simone from Fanatical Fix and Where to Find Them and But Make It Scary, a podcast which Becca and I actually guested on a few months ago. So if you want to hear us turn Bridget Jones' diary into a scary movie, check out But Make It Scary. And now, enjoy this week's episode, coincidentally also covering Bridget Jones' Diary, with our guest, Sequoia Simone. Uh, Molly and I had a, um, we had a video recording for our patrons last night. Oh, nice. <laughs> and we drank cocktails on it, and I, you know, we both got a little zhuzhed up for it. And now we're both, like, post-cocktail, so we're a little <laughs> verklumped. Yeah. But my, I'm at my parents' right now for Passover. Everyone's vaccinated, so it's all safe. But <laughs> my mother was like... So I'm guessing today is an audio recording. (laughs) Dang, mom. Wow, savage. Wow. Red to filth. Red to filth. Wow. She really got you. Damn. (laughs) She's not wrong, but you know. Wow. I am very excited to talk about Bridget Jones because now I've watched it, I think, four times this month. Um, Wow. A few times too many, I'd say. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here sort of to talk about Jane Austen. (laughs) We're here to kind of talk about Jane Austen. We're here to talk about something that was very loosely inspired by Jane Austen. Let's put it that way. And that thing we are going to talk about is Bridget Jones' Diary. The 2001 classic starring Renee Zellweger's British accent. (laughs) And we are not discussing this alone today. We are here joined by the wonderful Sequoia. Say hi to the people, Sequoia. Hi to the people. (laughs) Hello. Sequoia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do in the podcasting world and where they can hear you? Absolutely. Um, I'm Sequoia Simone. I host two podcasts. I've got Fanatical Fix and Where to Find Them, a Harry Potter fan fiction podcast, which I co-host with one of my very best friends. And then and I have a podcast called But Make It Scary, where I bring on guests and we take romantic movies and turn them into horror films. And if you were wondering what Bridget Jones might be like as a horror film, then you might want to hear me and Molly and Becca turn it into a horror film <laughs> on But Make It Scary. That's a fun show. Um, So I just, you know, tool around on the Internet doing uh, ridiculous stuff. And I'm a huge Austin fan. I'm a huge fan of Pod and Prejudice, Pod and Prejudice patron. Everybody go join Patreon, Pod and Prejudice Patreon. Look at that plug. Uh, (laughs) 
And uh, today, you can't really see it because it's hiding behind my microphone, but um, I am sporting my obstinate, headstrong girl necklace. Yes. That's wonderful. Amazing. We're so honored to have you on. We're big fans of your work as well. I mean, the idea of uh, starting a podcast with a close friend to deconstruct <laughs> certain classics. Who would have, yeah, who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk? <laughs> also, last night on our Patreon for our State and Pod Squad level patrons, we read some Jane Austen fan fiction aloud. So we're inspired by you in that way as well. And if listeners want to check that out, Again, check out the Patreon, and the video is up there for you to see if you become a Pod Squad or a state level patron. And you can see me drunk struggle to read some grammatically incorrect Ooh. content. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we usually go through pretty heavy edits beforehand just to just to make some things readable. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's smart. That's smart. Nope, we went fresh and live. Yeah, fresh we were like, spoiler free, We, you know, to stay true to the show. We were like, we're not going to read it in advance. We're just going to cycle through. Each of us reads a chapter. And it was, we had no idea what we were getting into. And we didn't finish. We read for like two hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we got through three chapters. We were like, all right. We'll, we'll do this next month. We'll finish it up. But speaking of fan fiction, uh, well, actually, for, before we go there, uh, Sequoia, Whenever we have guests on the podcast, we usually ask them a few questions about their relationship with Jane Austen, starting with the question, what is your relationship to Jane Austen? Excellent. <laughs> good question. Good question. Um, I am a huge Jane Austen fan. I am like, as a human being, I am hyper romantic. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if that's a term other people use, but it's a term that I use all the time. I'm hyper romantic and, um, I love romance bullshit. So like any movie, any TV show, it's why I love fan fiction. I love that fluffy stuff. So I love Jane Austen a lot. I love the plots. I love all the um, adaptations. And yeah, I think my introduction to Jane Austen was Pride and Prejudice. I read it in high school. It was my first Jane Austen. And then I was hooked from there. That is an excellent origin story for Jane Austen, especially I, Pride and Prejudice in high school. is just one of those moments where you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> exactly. So what's your favorite work of Jane Austen? That can be an adaptation, one of her books, a particularly great piece of fan fiction. <laughs> Um, I think it's got to be the 1995 uh, Pride and Prejudice, Colin Firth. Yeah, yeah, Jennifer yeah. Hill. Yeah. I mean, I it's hard to beat that, especially because, okay, so I watch it probably once a month. That is not a, an exaggeration. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Listen, that's goals. That's goals that I aspire to. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I really want to get back on my game of watching yeah. it over and over. Oh, I love that. I love that. That is a phenomenal thing to rewatch. Yeah. I mean, often it's, like, on in the background while I'm, like, working or doing the dishes or something else, you know? But it, like, calms me. It calms me. Oh, I love that. Uh, so which Austin character do you relate to the most? I thought about this a lot because I listened to the podcast and I knew that this question was coming. And I, <laughs> um, I did relate a lot to when Robin was on talking about like, oh, God, I think I'm Marianne. <laughs> you know? um, and I related to that a whole lot. But I do think that like at my core, um, I am Lizzie Bennett because I am incredibly stubborn. 
and really, really, really protective of my family and my my really close friends that are like my family. And I am really, really picky about uh, the people that I bring romantically into my life. <laughs> That's a very good trait, an underrated trait, I would say. Yeah. Being picky in romance is... I think it's a positive, honestly. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, so at this point, I've read nine chapters of Sense and Sensibility, and I can say wholeheartedly that I also related to, oh, no, I'm Marianne. Oh, no, but no, no. For me, <laughs> it's less of an oh, no for me and more of a I'm definitely Marianne, and, and I'm honestly proud of it at this point, but we'll see how I feel later on in the book. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I really like that that way of relating to Lizzie. Especially because you started out by saying that you really love any romantic bullshit. I think that that's Lizzie Bennet. The wonderful thing about Lizzie Bennet is that she is sharp-witted, picky, and hot-tempered, shall we say, with certain people in her life. But she's also a slut for the romance as well. Yeah. That's, like, very baked into the book. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And honestly, like, of my favorite Jane Austen heroines, I feel like... Lizzie Bennet is, she feels like ace hyper romantic to me. Mm. And that's how I am. So I like feel that a lot from her and I, I relate to it. I love that. I love that. So last question before we go on to discuss Bridget Jones diary. Do you have any real Austin hot takes that are not spoiler heavy for Molly? <laughs> uh, yo, I like Northanger Abbey and everybody hates <laughs> Northanger Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing about Northanger Abbey is like I feel like uh it's so horny which usually <laughs> would turn me off of something pretty immediately but like it is just like the most hilariously innocently sweet horny thing and I just think it's hilarious oh my um, god there's a movie adaptation with Felicity Jones in it uh and it's very good. And I don't know why, like, a lot of Austin people haven't seen it and are just like, no, I hate, I hate Northanger Abbey. Yeah, uh, Northanger Abbey is, like, my Austin blind spot. So, like, when we get there on the podcast, we're we're going to figure out how to, <laughs> how to structure our podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, m- mm-hmm. maybe we'll have to bring guests on who have read the book. I will absolutely come back for Northanger Abbey to be the one person, the one stan. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. All right. This is a very fitting episode for you to be on the podcast for because Bridget Jones Diary is kind of AU Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. fiction. So uh, the book is written, uh, Bridget Jones Diary is based on a book, which I did not know. I absolutely did not know before coming on your podcast. I was Mm -hmm. like, what? (laughs) It's based on a book by Helen Fielding. And the book apparently grew out of Helen Fielding's anonymous column for The Independent, apparently. Huh. Like, she kind of had a Carrie Bradshaw thing going on in the UK. Oh, that's intriguing. Oh, so the book is British. Oh, yeah, the book is super British, which is why people were, like, initially really mad that Renee Zellweger was cast as Bridget Jones. I'm still mad about (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. I was going through all these fun facts about Bridget Jones' diary, and a lot of them are focused on how intense Renee Zellweger was in learning her British accent. And I'm like, that was the result? (laughs) (laughs) But regardless, uh, as Molly noted, the screenplay writing team is exactly the team you would expect on a movie like this. 
because Helen Fielding, who wrote the book, was one of the screenwriters. Andrew Davies, who wrote the 2005 Pride and Prejudice script. 1995. 1995. Sorry, 1995 Pride and Prejudice worked on the script. And Richard Curtis, who is the mastermind behind, like, the entirety of British rom-cons in the 90s and 2000s, was also a writer on the script. Nice. So it's exactly, like, this is the brainchild of a fanfic writer, uh, Pride and Prejudice stan, and a rom-com writer. (laughs) And they did a great job. I think that their collaboration on this, um, the screenplay is actually quite good. And I think that it makes, it's like, it's like a perfect rom-com, you know, like you watch it and you don't have to think too hard and you're like, all right, that had all the elements that I was looking for. So I, I think they did a great job. Some other fun facts, Bingley from the 1995 played by Crispin Bonham Carter is also in this film as a person who works at Pemberley Press. And he's in two scenes, and it brings me such joy, uh, as well as the rest of the cast of Harry Potter is in this film. Yeah. <laughs> Madame Pomfrey and Taurus Slughorn having a really dysfunctional marriage. I love it. It's so funny because I didn't immediately recognize Madame Pomfrey. Yeah, me either. I was like, she looks really familiar. I'm going to look this woman up. And then I was like, oh my god! You know what? She has the range. Yeah. Let's say. <laughs> she does. She has the range. Between strict but very caring school nurse at a magic school and racist overbearing mother <laughs> who's got like a real sex problem in this movie. <laughs> she does. So... Yeah, then I guess the next thing to talk about is everyone's sort of history with this movie, their feelings initially on it before we get into the plot. Yeah, I think I uh, I used to love this movie a lot, a lot, uh, because it is like a quintessential rom-com. It absolutely like solidifies itself in the canon of rom-coms as like good like this is this is a you know this is a prime piece and on my rewatch for but make it scary I was like oh this they're just like lines and things that didn't age super well um and also I just had a really hard time because I usually don't watch it as an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice right I just watch it like as a movie but watching it as an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice I was like it this is a bad (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of a perfect summation of this fun movie if a little dated but definitely not pride and prejudice yeah at all yeah i similarly like first of all i saw the movie a very long time ago and i then forgot that i had seen it or i was like i've seen it but i don't remember what happens and then I found out through doing this podcast that it is supposed to be an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. So I was like, oh, I should watch that because we're going to cover it at some point. So a few months ago, I watched it and I had a rollicking good time. Honestly, I was like, wow, that's not Pride and Prejudice, but what a fun movie. And then I remembered sort of at the scene where she stands up to uh, Daniel Cleaver and she tells him that she would rather have a job wiping Saddam Hussein's ass. Like, I was like, ooh, I remember this movie. I've seen this before. <laughs> That's the standout bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, watching it now, I was like, yeah, it didn't age well, but still so fun. Still Colin Firth. So like, mm, mm. <laughs> Colin Firth continues to be uh, 
what, what what's the correct scientific phrase for this? A tall drink of water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I knew this movie for years. I think I vaguely knew in the back of my head it was related to Pride and Prejudice, but it's very separate in my brain from Pride and Prejudice because it's not the same story. And I had the same instinct of like, this is not Pride and Prejudice watching it through, but I kind of started watching it through this last time to record these podcasts. I started to really push my brain to think about how these stories relate. And I think We'll get there, but the the place where they really diverge the most is the main character. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking, like, there's that scene in Pride and Prejudice where Bridget... Sorry, we're Bridget. We're Lizzie. (laughs) They're so different. Anyway, let's confuse their names. (laughs) There's the scene in uh, Pride and Prejudice where Lizzie is reading the letter over and over again, and you see the wheels turning in her head as she realizes she's kind of misread everything she's completely failed to see the truth of the people in front of her and she says she says that famous line until this moment i did not know myself i think that this movie is kind of just taking that one moment from pride and prejudice and making it into an entire (laughs) yes yeah definitely that moment where lizzie is so unsure of herself embarrassed insecure and caught between two men one who flattered her and one who embarrassed her and then realizing the entire time she was wrong yeah they just drew that out they were like that's a movie that's the whole movie yeah (laughs) i definitely had been watching it like the first few times not as a Pride and Prejudice adaptation and I did have a hard time in like when we were figuring out how we were going to structure this episode I was like we need to talk about the similarities and differences but like there really aren't similarities <laughs> so I was like trying to figure it out and like tie the lines together and I think that that's really that's the moment that they latched onto. So that all being said, I suppose we should tell you all what happens in the film if you haven't seen it already. I've written a plot synopsis So, the film begins with Bridget attending her mother's turkey curry buffet, where she meets Mark Darcy, a divorced barrister. She makes a fool of herself, and he's incredibly rude about it, and then she goes home and drinks and cries to all by myself and decides to turn her life around. So, she gets a diary, keeping track of her New Year's resolutions, namely not fantasizing about her boss at Pemberley Press, Daniel Cleaver, played by Hugh Grant obviously, uh, the Wickham equivalent. <laughs> and this proves to be harder than she thought because he starts messaging her on instant messenger, which is, this is so 2001. So dated. Ooh, I love it. I mean, it. it would be Slack nowadays, which is basically yeah. just I am. <laughs> Although this would not happen over Slack nowadays because this is one of those aspects of the film that has become quite dated. The Me Too era does not allow for a boss to text you is your skirt out sick and then grab your butt in an elevator no no the whole plot line is like uh, very cringy and they even say like she jokes about how he's sexually uh harassing her but she loves it like yeah yikes bridget yikes (laughs) the company hosts a book launch and mark darcy is there for some reason with his law partner natasha who is like the caroline bingley equivalent sort of 
He and Daniel notice each other from across the room in the classic Darcy Wickham awkward stare down scene. And then Bridget gives a disastrous speech and Mark afterwards looks like he might try to comfort her. But then Daniel sweeps in and brings her away to dinner, at which dinner Daniel tells Bridget that Darcy slept with his fiance and he and Bridget begin stripping. (laughs) Meanwhile, Bridget finds out that her parents, played by Horace Slughorn and Madame Pomfrey, are having marital problems. Her mom goes to work with Julian, who is a jeweler, and they start dating even though he is gay and Bridget's dad is distraught. Wait, wait. Yeah, we need to go back to this. This is a very queer coded character. Yes. Super. Again, this movie is dated in its portrayal of LGBT people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. The the best friend definitely and Julian are the two big ones. She does call her best friend a poof, I think, twice. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's a term that you are allowed to to use anymore no I I don't think so I think that it's at this time was meant lovingly but did not did not age well yeah yeah it has a certain um cringy 40 something woman who's all her besties are gay (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and they're like her they're like her uh her city family so like if you're gonna have like a I guess a diverse city family in In 2001, in London, it's uh, three white people and one of them's gay. (laughs) I'm really glad that you said that it was a diverse city family because in context of this film, there are exactly uh, two people of color ever on screen. Who? who? I I literally... I don't even remember. They're just background characters in crowd scenes. Oh, great. So nobody would... Oh, you know what? Um... At one point in time, Mark Darcy is defending a person of color in court. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't speak. You're right. At all. Does not have a <laughs> he line. He doesn't have any lines. <laughs> nope. Mm-mm. Yeah, so, so that didn't age well. Um, Julian being kind of the villain of the film. But he's not the villain of the film. Obviously, Daniel Cleaver is the villain of the film. But Julian isn't great. Um, and he's like one of the only queer coded characters in the film. Not great either. So they start dating, meaning Bridget and Daniel. Daniel takes her on a mini break where they, Darcy and Natasha, are the only three at the hotel not there for a wedding party. So they're supposed to be attending her family's Tarts and Vickers party together, but Daniel leaves before the party. Bridget arrives dressed as a bunny, but nobody told her that the theme had been canceled. So she's embarrassed, obviously. I'm just thinking about how weird a Tarts and Vickers party is as a concept. Yeah. They also vaguely imply that her uncle like didn't tell her on purpose so she'd dress up all like revealed because her uncle's a perv yeah gross that wasn't vaguely implied I'd say that that was the (laughs) the whole point (laughs) but then he didn't tell her dad either so like I don't know what the point of that was yeah that's true that's true and one of her aunts is also that's one of my favorite moments is when auntie shirley like comes out from behind a bush and she's dressed as a tart it's like the the aunt who's like oh yes you didn't get the message about the theme changing either and she's like just in like the tartish outfit yeah it's a great moment a great moment when bridget gets back home from the party she finds that daniel has been cheating on her with laura from new york This is when Bridget decides to really take control of her life, and there's a montage set to I'm Every Woman where she throws out all of her alcohol and books about how to get men. Actually, I wasn't clear on this. Does she drink all the alcohol, or does she throw it out? I think she throws it out. I think she throws it out? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she she drinks it and then throws out the empty bottles that served as a reminder. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I also will say that uh, there are aspects of this film that didn't age well, aspects that still hold up as funny today. 
the one thing that I think is absolutely timeless is the soundtrack. It oh. still slaps. Yes. The soundtrack is so good, especially the second half, which is just Ain't No Mountain High Enough on repeat. <laughs> oh, that's not true. There's It's Raining Men. Oh, you're right. There's it's I'm Every Men. Woman. Yeah. There's there's so much, <laughs> so much going on. Yes. So the I'm Every Woman ma- montage, she throws out all the stuff. She replaces her books with women empowerment books, and she goes on a bunch of job interviews at TV stations. She lands a new job at Stand Up Britain. She goes back to Pemberley Press and quits her job, publicly embarrassing Daniel in the scene we talked about earlier, in which Bingley is a small character. (laughs) After exposing her butt on local TV by sliding down a fire pole. Which happens to all of us. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. casual (laughs) butt exposure. She goes to a dinner party with a bunch of creepy, annoying married couples. And Darcy tells her he likes her just as she is in this movie's equivalent of Proposal Get In which I have a lot of thoughts about and we'll talk about (laughs) later. Bridget cannot stop thinking about this and she tells all of her friends. Also, her best friend Jude is played by Moaning Myrtle, another Harry Potter cast member. And I found out her best friend who swears a lot is played by the director of the film. Oh, no way. And apparently a good friend of Helen Fielding's, the writer. Huh. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then they just put in a gay guy. <laughs> Which also, but her her gay friend, I think is an excellent character. Uh, and one of my favorite moments comes from him, which is when his chair is on someone's wife's coat. Oh my gosh. Oh, an incredible moment. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, yes, it was me. No plans to record anything further. <laughs> and he's like, I, I'm sorry. You're, you're on my wife's coat. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. See, I do a better accent than Renee Zellweger. Renee Zellweger's accent is a Bridget Jones accent. And when you watch the movie, it's like, uh, yes, I'm watching Bridget Jones now, but it's not a British accent. Yeah. British <laughs> listeners, if you disagree with us and you think that she did a good job capturing a certain British accent, They're please tell gonna, us. They don't think that. <laughs> not to speak for Britain, but. I, I know. I was going to say, I just don't want to speak for Britain as like three Americans being like, she can't do a British accent. If a bunch of British people are like, actually, she did better than most Americans do or something like that. Yeah, I mean, this is, the bar is low. The bar is on the floor. Yeah, it's so unfair. They do such a good job imitating us and we do a terrible job imitating them yeah Mm -hmm. i mean but here's the thing though i will say this is a total side note but little women emma watson i'm sorry love you emma watson but oh she can't do an american accent in any she's played an american so many times and every single time i'm like why do they keep letting her do this yeah it's distracting (laughs) i actually thought she was quite good in little women this is a hot take but i think it's the first time emma watson has been properly cast in something wow yeah (laughs) Man, I don't know. I thought that she was the weak link in Little Women. I mean, that's not fair, though. Everyone was so strong in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, a weak link of a strong chain. (laughs) But, I mean, yeah, like, she's got so much grace, and she's got so much, like, gentleness to her. And I personally wanted Hermione to be a bit of a neurotic disaster, but that's me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway, her American accent in that is terrible. (laughs) Yes. Back to a British film. So... Bridget is assigned a very important case, the Agani Heaney case, and while she's there, she runs into Darcy, who gets her an exclusive interview. After the interview, he comes by to congratulate her on the interview, and it's the same night she's cooking a birthday dinner for all her friends. It's her birthday, but she's cooking for her friends. She accidentally makes blue soup, iconically, so Darcy decides to help her cook. They're going to make omelets. After dinner, Daniel shows up, and he tries to get back together with Bridget. Then... He and Darcy fight through the streets set to It's Raining Men. 
Darcy punches him in the face. He falls down. And afterwards, Bridget yells at him, Darcy, saying, what's wrong with you? But then when Daniel tries to get back with her, she turns him down. I would say this is a moment of the film in earnest that aged very nicely. Yeah. It's really like a great scene. (laughs) Oh, when they all stop to sing happy birthday in the middle of the fight. <laughs> Chef's kiss. This is very good. Very good. I was also specifically talking about like Bridget is like, what's what's wrong with you to Colin Firth's character? And he walks away. And then Hugh Grant's like, come on. Like, if I can't make it with you, I can't make it with anyone. And she just goes, no, that's not good enough for me and walks away from him. She says, I'm looking for something more extraordinary, extraordinary than that. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So time passes and it's Christmas Eve. And Bridget's mom comes back and she and the dad get back together in a very sweet scene. It's the next day. It's Darcy's parents' Ruby wedding party. Before the party, Bridget finds out that Daniel actually stole Mark's wife. And she's like, gotta get there. And she speeds them to the party set to Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And she arrives. She tells Mark how she feels about him only to discover that he is moving to New York with Natasha. So she's sad. She sinks into a downward spiral. To help her get over Mark, her friends come over and try to take her to Paris for the weekend. But Darcy comes back just as she's about to get in the car and she goes upstairs to change. They have this like moment they're about to make out. But then Darcy finds her diary where she talked shit about him and he says, right. And he leaves and she is like, oh, no, I got to go. She is naked. She's wearing underwear (laughs) and a sweater. and She runs through the streets to find him and she finds him coming out of a bookstore and she says the diaries are just bought for crap you know and he says I know I wanted to get you a new one fresh start perhaps and then they kiss and that is the end of the film no 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 that's not the end of the film there's a seat there's a moment where they kiss she pulls away and she goes nice guys don't kiss kiss like like that that. (laughs) and he goes oh yes they fucking do listen I wasn't gonna say it because that's my favorite part of the film but (laughs) it's so good it's so good and just the way he says it oh yes they fucking do oh my god Colin Firth Colin Firth pour one out (laughs) moment reverent bow all right that was impressive Molly Thank you. I, you know, normally what we do, as as you know, Sequoia and our listeners know, but I'll say it anyway. Normally what we do is the whole episode is us going through picking apart moment by moment. And we thought that with this movie, it'd be best to focus on the things that tie it to Pride and Prejudice and how it diverges. So I wanted to get the plot out there as fast as I could. And it was two pages, but here we did it anyway. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to chat uh, some Pride and Prejudice with Bridget Jones' diary? Let's do it. So I guess the way we're going to do this is we have a couple uh, picked out things that are either really similar or really different between the two pieces of art. (laughs) I don't know why. Media. We can call it art. You can call it media. Media. Pop culture. (laughs) Literature. Um, So the first one. The most obvious, I think, is the Darcy Wickham plotline, which is basically the whole movie. (laughs) Yes. It's like you said, they took that one part where Lizzie was torn between the two of them and they stretched it out. They made Wickham more of a character. I mean, in, in removing Lydia, they made Wickham's sole purpose be to be a foil to Darcy, which like in the book, obviously, there is more of a plot line there. But they still kept the idea that um, Wickham slash uh, Hugh Grant did something really bad that like 
is embarrassing for Darcy in a way that he's not talking about publicly. I don't know how, I don't know how Bridget's mom knows. Bridget's mom's kind of a busybody, so she just like figured it out. But um, I think it's, it was a fitting way to sort of update the idea that like he did something really, really terrible. Absolutely. I would say that Daniel Cleaver, in some ways, he's interesting because he is in some ways more of a villain and less of a villain than Wickham because he more directly halfway through this film wrongs our heroine. Right. Like he does something really bad to Lizzie in the book, but it's indirectly. It's doing something bad to her sister. Mm -hmm, Her family. Here, he immediately cheats on her. And uh, it's much more crystal clear that that is directly aimed at Bridget as, as Wickham kind of aims at Lizzie, but it's it's something that people in literature debate about. And I think, on the other hand, Wickham, what he does to Darcy is so, in context, intensely awful and has predatory vibes. Whereas in this, he's he's done something that's an absolute betrayal. It's super horrible. It's super hurtful. But it's kind of just like a selfish obnoxious, rude thing to do as opposed to, like, a life-ruining thing. Well, I guess it is life-ruining because it... <laughs> I mean, he ends his marriage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll also add that this movie made Darcy and Wickham best friends, where in the book, they actually were just, like, you know, they had a kind of rivalry always because Darcy's father loved Wickham more than he loved Darcy. Here, they are best friends. He was best man at Darcy's wedding. And still betrayed him, which makes him a lot worse, in my opinion, than even Wickham in the book, because he like he chose to do that and betray his best friend's trust. Yeah. And I think that's the most unbelievable thing they did is like, are you you're telling me that these two men were best friends literally at any point right in their lives? I can't see it. Like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense for their relationship at all. No. Well, I mean, this is just something that's, like, weird. And I've noticed this about men, and anybody of any gender can correct me on this, but I have noticed certain guy friends of mine who have friends that are like, yeah, he's kind of a jerk. But, like, you know, we get along, you know? Right. That's, like, right. something guys do. It's very weird. Yeah, and I suppose Darcy is a bit standoffish. This is something that when we were reading the book, we were always like, why are Darcy and Bingley friends? Like, this doesn't really make sense. But <laughs> they complement each other well. And I think that Daniel Cleaver brings out the worst sides of Darcy. Like, those moments where Darcy is kind of blunt and awkward and uncomfortable. Like, I could see them maybe hanging out and... Daniel kind of like dragging Darcy along to all the bars and being like, hey, let's go. And Darcy's like, all right, fine, I'm here. Yeah, Yeah, that's valid. I do see how they kind of gave uh, Daniel Cleaver a little bit of Bingley in that way of like making him the best friend. Extrovert. And an extrovert, yeah. But uh, as far as like, following through with the plot line of Darcy and Wickham from Pride and Prejudice. Of course, like in the book, the the confrontation with, between them isn't an actual confrontation and we don't get to see it. 
it's like explained to us afterwards what happened so this like being able to see those two characters have an actual confrontation and like beat the shit out of each other is actually really gratifying oh, oh yeah it's wonderful it's so great and especially i i just every fight should be interrupted by a birthday cake <laughs> every single yes i i'm not big on fight scenes like i don't love gore i don't love watching people punch each other it's you know it doesn't make me feel good this one i could watch till the end of time and be perfectly happy about it because first of all it starts out the fight scene they're like shimmying and like it looks like a bad stage combat class where like yeah. he like darcy like tries to kick out his leg and it doesn't meet them at all and it's you just have to watch it because they look like they don't know what they're doing and they're so nervous about it fun fact i actually when i was researching this podcast found out that scene was not choreographed <gasps> what that is literally colin firth and hugh grant like i mean they're not actually hitting each other but like that scene is literally how Colin Firth and Hugh Grant would fight in those characters. That's so funny because it looks like they kind of are having a moment where they're like laughing together, but you like you can't they're not actually <laughs> laughing, but they're like they're like, all right, are you gonna kick me or am I gonna kick you? Like <laughs> And it adds to it. It adds to it so much. Right, because that's how they would really do it. Like they've never punched each other before they were best friends like what are they gonna do have you guys ever watched uh, sex in the city fully through no. no okay there's an episode in season four where carrie's ex mr big and her current boyfriend aiden like they have a lot of tension and because carrie's an <laughs> idiot they mr big yeah mr big i'm i've only seen one episode of sex in the city i just think that's really funny all right keep going it is another one of those that has a lot of smart things to say about romance and women but has been dated very poorly but uh, i'm a big fan of it for the same reason i love rom-coms even if they're dated <laughs> um but there's a scene where the two of them get into a fight and like it's in the mud and they're both like 40 something guys and they're just going for it and then Carrie runs out and she looks at them and she goes stop you're middle aged <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those moments where every time I see a fight like this I think in my head stop you're middle aged <laughs> because some men you could clearly tell are not built to fight and Hugh Grant and Colin Firth quintessentially are until you see Colin Firth and Kingsman but in this movie certainly not yeah and you feel like it, it feels like at any moment one of them could just sort of throw out a hip and then the fight would be over you know yeah it's like while they're like like banging through the restaurant you hear them go like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry <laughs> to everyone whose meal they're ruining yes Oh my gosh. I also, during this scene, I couldn't stop thinking about love actually. And I know that they don't even interact in that. Do they even interact in that movie? No. No. They're, like, they're on opposite ends of the plot line. Um, but I was just like, wow, I bet that these two guys are friends and they're probably like having a blast because they've been in these movies together and like I don't know it just it brought me joy the fight scene brings me joy and <laughs> I think it is good that we get some closure with them at last yeah and it gives us vicarious closure for Wickham and Darcy right prejudice yeah yeah Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. 
You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. All right. I guess that brings us to our next one, which is our next similarity is the characters of Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett kind of juxtaposed next to Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Bridget's parents. For me, this plot line was the closest to the book's plot line. I think that they really captured what Mr. and Mrs. Bennett would be like in a modern context, specifically Mrs. Bennett. She is so Mrs. Bennett, Mrs. Jones. Mm. She is like, wants all the gossip. She's a little racist, a little obnoxious, doesn't really know when to stop talking, uh, tells her daughter too much about her sex life, you know, needs more attention than her husband is willing to give her, acts sporadically. I think that they did a really good job with her. And and it's impossible not to like them, which is, is different from the books because they're not very likable in the books, although we on this podcast stand them. <laughs> I know that Mr. Bennett is not supposed to be a sympathetic character, and yet... I love to love him. So I mean, Mr. Bennett has some redeeming qualities. I think Mrs. Bennett is given a lot of flack in the book, but you know, the the relationship between Mr. Bennett and Lizzie is one of the most heartwarming things in the entire book series. Book series book. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Pride and Prejudice 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice and Zombies 3D. I'm really glad. I think that authentically translates into this movie as well. You see the relationship between Bridget and her dad is one that is quite close and sort of making fun of her mother. And there's a lot of affection there that's, uh, you know, I think authentic to the original. Yeah, I like that when you take those characters and update them into a time period where they don't have exactly the same worries as they have in Pride and Prejudice, that their relationship plays out differently. I like that she leaves because it highlights Mr. Bennett's issue in their relationship, like the Mr. Bennett issue. He is not nice to his wife and uh, ignores her and stays in his 
in his study all the time. And in this, like, he's obviously, like, less harsh than that. But he is clearly, we are told, neglecting her in some type of way and, you know, thinks she's kind of silly and and la-di-da. So I like that when they update those characters, we do get to see that Mrs. Bennett gets more agency because she's in this time period and is doing something about it. Um, I don't love what she does, but, you know, it's. <laughs> I think it is uh, true to their characters. I totally agree with that. And that little speech she gives to the dad towards the end of the film where she's like, it's not easy for me. I feel like you don't see me. I feel like you and Bridget have this little club where you grown ups club, your grown ups club where you uh, make fun of me together. That self-awareness and that self-consciousness about it is something we never see from Mrs. Bennett in the books. But that grown ups club, as she puts it, definitely exists between Lizzie and Mr. Bennett in the books. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up was that that speech, because for me, having watched it a few times, that was actually the moment where I was like, oh, this is based on Pride and Prejudice. These are her parents. This is Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Like I hadn't even that hadn't clicked for me until like the third time watching it. And it was in that moment. I also think that what Mrs. Bennett does, like, I don't hate it. I know that like Julian is not a great character and the whole thing is very weird and she's clearly doing it as like an act of rebellion but she does like her job before modeling jewelry on tv was modeling an egg peeler that was very phallic (laughs) by the way may I add um that was yeah excellent moment where Bridget's like it is a single it is a Heck, what is it? It is a truth universally acknowledged that when one part of your life starts going okay, another falls spectacularly to pieces. Yes. And so Bridget says that, and then we see her mom with this egg peeler, like, pumping it, and then the juices fly out. And (laughs) I think that she does a good thing for herself by, you know, she gets, quote, talent scouted by this man who then she also starts stripping, but... You know, she moves from being in the mall to being on local television. And I think that she needed to explore that. And I like she gets a character arc of like branching out and then coming back and being like, actually, I was very happy with you to the dad. And he oh, and when she comes back and he says, oh, I don't know, it's been very hard. And she's like, oh, Colin. And then he says, I'm joking, you daft cow. I don't work without you. And it's so pure. It's very cute. I also like that because I feel like we got a lot of people telling us that Mr. and Mrs. Bennett had a very unhappy marriage in the books. And this is my Austin hot take. I think Lizzie has a very skewed view of her parents' marriage in a certain way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I liked seeing that even though they're kind of dysfunctional and they've got all this, these problems, that they do love each other. Yeah, for sure. I thought they were very cute and uh, and still really true to the characters in the books. A plus on that plot line, Andrew Davies. Good work. <laughs> that, that was the pro- plot line Andrew Davies wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, so next on the list, we have Embarrassing Parties. And this is a great catch, Molly, that I definitely have missed before. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I noticed it on my third or fourth watch through that the whole, so Lizzie in this, and we're going to talk about the character of Lizzie a lot, which I, it, Bridget, Bridget in this, Bridget is the name of the character who is Lizzie. <laughs> um, Bridget is embarrassing herself for her whole family 
Whereas in Pride and Prejudice, it's Lizzie's family that's embarrassing, not Lizzie herself. But because we've gotten rid of all of the sisters and the parents are like a separate plot line, she has to embarrass herself for all of them. And so there were several moments that I wanted to pull out and talk about the book launch, where that would be, in my opinion, the equivalent of the Netherfield Ball because she embarrasses herself in front of Darcy. Though he didn't seem to put out about it. He he was more rude to her in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. They have to have like the device of Darcy being endeared to her being embarrassing because that's part of like if she's going to be the one doing embarrassing things, then he has to lo- fall in love with the girl doing embarrassing things, you know? Yeah. 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 She also embarrasses herself in the first party, which like I guess that could also be that's the public ball. Yes. The um turkey curry buffet where she's like you know, talking about how she was going to quit smoking and drinking and keep New Year's resolutions because she has a cigarette and a cocktail. Um, And then he says, instead of saying she is tolerable but not handsome enough to tempt him, he goes much worse and says uh, he doesn't want to date someone who drinks like a something. Fish, smokes like a chimney. And dresses like her mother. Yeah. He calls her verbally incontinent. (laughs) (laughs) It's like real hard like it's much worse than in the public ball where he's just like "Eh, it's not handsome enough to tempt me or like no that's kind of rude but this he's like she's verbally incontinent she drinks like a fish and he's like met her for two seconds (laughs) this one time right and she's standing right there like Mm -hmm. it's really bad and it was kind of hard for me to believe that he was going to be able to come back from that and he does almost immediately um yeah (laughs) To be fair, this is also true in Pride and Prejudice. There's sort of an immediate 180 where Darcy goes from like, oh, God, her, to like, ooh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To like, ooh, hey, hello. And to be fair, it kind of, it rings more true to that line we hear about happening but don't see other than the 1995 where they say like, Elizabeth's supposed to be a great beauty. And he says, I'd as soon call her mother a wit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the level we're talking here. Yeah. Yeah. However, at the book launch, I, he it's not like completely like he starts to be a little bit intrigued by her. And I think she starts to be a little bit intrigued by him at the book launch. But when Perpetua comes over and she's like, ah, yes, like, what should I say? And she imagines saying these rude things about both of them. And instead, Bridget gives a really thoughtful introduction for Darcy. Then he says, this is Bridget. She works here and used to run around naked in my paddling pool. And it's like, Darcy, she's trying to offer you. Uh, what's it called? An olive branch. Or, so she doesn't do well at parties. He doesn't do well at parties. There's also the, you know, the dinner where everyone is embarrassing her. And he, at that point, is starting to defend her a little bit um, by saying that, you know, three out of every five marriages end in divorce or something like that. But everyone's trying to, like, rag on her at that party as well. So it's a lot of public embarrassment also like her speech at the end at the ruby wedding party oh Oh my god that is like if i were to pick out a moment in this movie that like i can't watch it's that moment (laughs) it's so hard to watch but i do love when she says um that they're you know we're losing one of our one of our our top people our our top person really oh it's so it's so it's so sad and good but yeah i mean that dinner party I feel like they had to um they had to put Bridget in a situation 
that was like outside of her family and friend sphere in like a like a really uncomfortable but more intimate situation than a party because in the books you get this whole portion of her with like Lady Catherine de Bourgh at Rosings and there I feel the equivalency there of like here we're at a nice dinner party with all of these couples and you are singled out in this scenario and there's one person who's just like needling you and being super rude about it and Darcy then uh, sort of uses that as a, as a jumping off point yeah, I had not thought about that. That is the Catherine de Bourgh sequence, particularly the scene at dinner where she's like, are all of you, and all your sisters out at once? <laughs> and is anybody All wrong? five out at once. <laughs> That's a good segue into Proposal Get-In because that happens at that dinner party. And Proposal Get-In is very different here from what it is in the books and movies. Yes. Yes, this proposal get-in is, in fact, not a proposal get-in. It's like a very sweet moment. Yeah. Really. He comes out to her, and he tries to say that he, you know, she's like, you must hate me. And he's like, I don't hate you. I think that you. there are elements of the ridiculous about you. I think that you don't really know when to shut up. And he he lists all of the things that are bad about her, which is what he does in proposal get-in. But then he says, I think what I'm trying to say is despite appearances, I like you very much. And then she says, you mean if I drank less and dressed better and lost weight and blah, 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 blah. And he was like, no, I like you very much just as you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they still managed to get in like the awkwardness of him sort of stumbling all over himself and like saying things to her that aren't as flattering as you would generally say to a person if you were being like, hey, what's up, girl, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it definitely has, like, a more wholesome tone. And she has less to come back at him about, right? Because during Proposal Get-In, she has just learned that he got in the way of Jane's happiness. And that is, like, she's riding into that conversation on that emotion. And then doubles down on that with the Wickham stuff. But if you take out that entirely, she doesn't really have a good reason to be mad at him. Well, what they do with Lizzie and Darcy here and Bridget and Mark in this is they, instead of having a lot of things to point to that he's done wrong, instead he just says a bunch of stuff at the very beginning that attaches to the things she hates the most about herself. Right. So like, when she is feeling bad about herself, like at the book launch and at this dinner party, when the things she feels the worst about herself are like at the forefront, that is when she hates Darcy the most. So what they do is they put her in a situation where she like really is at a low. And the last person she wants to see is the person who confirmed all of these insecurities for her. Right. At the very beginning. And they do have her confront him and say, you know, a bunch of stuff shutting him down at the very beginning. And then he launches into proposal get in, quote unquote, the the listeners can't see me do this. Um, (laughs) And proposal get in is actually this sweet moment where he kind of backtracks on a lot of the things that made her insecure and says, actually, those things that you hate, I I find them endearing. You know, it's it's interesting because at the 
Hearts and Vickers party, someone says, like, are you still with that that Daniel? Like, I hope he's good enough for you. And Darcy is like, I can say with 100% certainty that he's not. And she's like, uh, I should like I should say the same about you or something like considering your past behavior. And he's like, what do you mean? And she says, I think you know what I mean. The thing is, it, her believing that he cheated on with Daniel Cleaver's fiance doesn't actually ever come up again until the end. She could bring that up at Proposal Get In, but she doesn't because it actually has nothing to do with her. And she's willing to forgive him for that during the fight. Like, they're like, oh, like, who are we rooting for? We're rooting for Mark, obviously. But, like, Mark cheated on his fiance, blah, 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 blah. Right. But, like, it's not. it doesn't really have to do with her, so it doesn't actually give her ammo. So it's kind of like a separate plot line. Yeah, so the brunt of Proposal Get In has to fall on the insecurities portion. Which is relatable. Because if someone calls out the things that you're most insecure about, like, yeah, that's going to sting and that's going to stick with you. And and it's, I think, in Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie isn't necessarily insecure about her looks. She doesn't really need Darcy to like her. And on some level, she is stung by what he says and she carries it with her through the whole book. But she is not going to, like, carry, like, that's not the main thing that she comes back at him with at Proposal Get In. It's not like you said I was tolerable but not handsome enough to tempt you because she's more concerned about her family and Bridget is a standalone figure in this in this film. Which kind of brings us to our next bit. And this, I think, is where we're really going to talk about how this adaptation diverges a lot from the original material, and that is the character of Bridget. Yes. Sequoia, yes, you want to yes. start start us off? <laughs> you're like, you're like wow, wow, I can wow, hear the wow. engine revving behind that <laughs> microphone. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing is, like, I love Lizzie Bennet, and I know that she, like, has her flaws and whatever, but, like, she is one of my favorite characters ever in all of literature. Um, So I am very picky and ticky tacky about what you do with my favorite character and watching this if I watch it like I usually do which is outside of the context of Pride and Prejudice I have problems with Bridget and I think that I had on this on the watch through where I took all my notes and was thinking about it in the context of Pride and Prejudice, I got really mad about it. I was like, what are you doing to my character? And then we actually went on uh, and recorded But Make It Scary. And I think, Becca, you said something about like um, how Bridget, because I have I have a problem with like all of the like self uh what what am I trying to say deprecation thank you I got you the self-deprecation stuff (laughs) is like really hard for me to like stomach and get through and you were talking about how um the whole movie becomes about her accepting herself as she is um which is nothing like Lizzie Bennett's plot line. It is absolutely nothing even close. It's completely and totally different. And looking at it through that lens, I don't have as many problems because you just have to take it and separate it completely. But if you are trying to put Bridget next to Lizzie Bennett, Lizzie Bennett has so much power that Bridget doesn't. I 100% agree with you. I think that Lizzie is one of the most powerful heroines written in the classics canon. And I think kind of what makes her what she is 
is that in like early 19th century England, she is a woman who does not compromise, who is bold, who is confident and sure of herself for pretty much the entire book. And that is something that has been vital to the development of women in literature and frankly, women in film as well for the last 200 years. Right. So I think what's tough for Bridget to live up to is that level of power and confidence and the echo of what Lizzie Bennet is through all of literature. I think what Bridget is, and I I love her for it, but also it's tough when you realize she's supposed to be Elizabeth Bennet, is that Bridget is someone who kind of, she hates a lot of things about herself in the way that we all hate a lot of things about ourselves. You know, like in college, I drank too much and like, I get mad at myself if I eat too much fried food or something like those are relatable feelings. And so the power of seeing a character from the beginning of a film to the end of the film learn that it's okay if she's like not lost weight or still drinking and smoking at the rate she was at the beginning. And, you know, if she ends up turning down her like dreamy boss, that might be the right decision. It's just a very different kind of character because Bridget has to pull that lesson and like tug it out from her story. Whereas Lizzie, her story is very much more about like, oh, maybe I was too confident. Maybe I missed something because I was too sure of myself on something. And maybe I need to learn to open up my mind a little more. Whereas Bridget's like, oh, maybe I should stop questioning myself so much. Yeah. I think the reason this happened with Bridget being this kind of character versus Lizzie being the strong independent woman that she is is because they made it a double romance plot line. Lizzie Bennett is looking for her match, like someone to match her intellectually, conversationally, someone who is not just rich, although look at, lucky for her he is rich, <laughs> whereas Bridget gets torn between two men and it kind of as much as like women empowerment like date whoever the fuck you want they make her more wishy-washy and like ooh, this guy is doing this for me but wait now this guy's doing this for me and like i don't know who to pick ah like they take away some of her agency and her power because she's letting her actions be controlled by these men and and then she does get the moment where she's like fuck the men i want to go into television like ooh, i'm gonna do my own thing but like i think that that's why the character gets demoted in those ways. Yeah. The hyper-focusing on, like, the love triangle as opposed to uh, talking about these class conflicts, these barriers for women in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. If we are, you know, jokingly, but maybe also definitely <laughs> talking about this in a fan through a fan fiction lens, oh, yeah. um, this is actually something you see a lot in fan fiction where, like, one character will be completely different than what they are in the canonical works because they are a self-insert. So I wonder in this context, I don't know anything about the author of the book, if this character isn't Lizzie Bennet, it's a self-insert. I think that's a really great insight for this because this book, I think, was partially autobiographical for Helen Fielding because she talks about how this book is kind of stemming from her writing about her own single life in London. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those feelings that are very modern to us, a lot of those 
instincts as a single girl. And I think a lot of her neuroses come from the author of Bridget Jones' Diary, not from Jane Austen. Right. That is very interesting because, and I've only read Pride and Prejudice at this point, but I feel like a lot of Pride and Prejudice fans and Jane Austen fans in general relate to Lizzie Bennet a lot. And I think that she is one of the most adapted characters to other storylines. I mean, Pride and Prejudice as a storyline is used in every enemies to lovers story. (laughs) Um, It's relatable. I think people see themselves in Lizzie, but in the same way that like the 2005 Pride and Prejudice pulled out the awkwardness of Darcy and made that his thing, people pull out certain elements of Lizzie and make that their thing. And I think it's easy to like warp the characters while keeping their purpose in the story but warp the characters to fit whatever kind of mold you want them to fit. Honestly, I think the two most on-brand for who they are in the book's characters we have are Wickham and Mrs. Bennet. Yeah. And it's because they're the two most outrageous characters in Pride and Prejudice, so they glean the most modern-day comedy. Yeah. That actually brings us to our final listed similarity or difference, and I think this is going back to something that's a little similar, but obviously has different connotations, and that is the theme of marriage in both stories. We start Pride and Prejudice with, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. But um, Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the themes of singledom and marriage resonate through Bridget Jones' diary as much as they resonate through Pride and Prejudice, which is impressive because... This is a book that was published in like 1813 and this movie came out in 2001, nearly 200 years later, and women are still trapped as much in the need to find a man, not as economically as they used to be, but still the societal expectations persist to the point where it felt natural in 2001 to have a story about a woman who was, you know, 32, like and her whole life is about finding a boyfriend. Yeah, I think I mean this movie opens with her saying it began on New Year's Day on my 32nd year of being single. And I think Pride and Prejudice does a pretty good job of like Lizzie is not super concerned about her singledom in Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that in order to translate the theme of marriage into a modern day context, you have to make her also concerned about it because there aren't as many outside factors to influence her to be concerned about it, if that makes sense. No, totally. (laughs) Definitely. And I mean, removing the sisters is a big reason why she had to be concerned with it because there are a lot of movies that came out in the early 2000s where it's like a younger sister feeling like, oh, like, I don't know, like, 27 dresses, like always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Like that's a thing that is done in modern cinema. But since she is alone and her friends are also all single. So actually like (laughs) none of them are really concerned about it, but they are. The character that I think is that's cut from the Pride and Prejudice that is kind of supplanted slightly into Bridget is Charlotte Lucas. Yes. Because Charlotte is not the most desirable wife. Because she's older, she's a little plainer. She's, she's not as 
27. I know. I'm 27. And I'm scared. <laughs> and I'm frightened. I have no money of my own. I'm already a burden on my parents. <laughs> Iconic. But Charlotte Ooh. Lucas is like this, quote, spinster. She's plain. She's not as bright and sparkly as Jane or Lizzie. And you can feel the palpable concern that leads her to marry Mr. Collins. And it's it's not unfounded. She actually really did need to make that match. And I think you have to take some of that. Bridget is 32, which is by no means a spinster age. But like this movie was made 20 years ago and people used to be very harsh on single women in their 30s. Yeah. As you can see, as they as they give us ample evidence. Yeah. The dinner party. Yeah. The dinner party and her mom. That's, you know, they kept the Mrs. Bennett will not shut up about uh, marrying off her children. And in this adaptation, she's just got one to hyper focus on. And she has a new guy trying to set her up at the turkey curry buffet every year. There's a new guy, trying to, you know, um, and they establish this theme of marriage right off the bat which I think is important to keeping that thread throughout the story. And even when she's with Daniel Cleaver, Mr. Wickham, she talks about marriage and she like in her little narration bits is like, oh, and now I'm imagining us getting married and living the white picket fence and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you can see it in her mind as a, a goal. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, jumping back a moment to um, the Charlotte Lucas being embedded in the character of Bridget, that's another thing. This is actually jumping back to the character of Bridget and (laughs) not about marriage at all. But the whole thing about Pride and Prejudice that Lizzie is hot and Jane is hot and like that Charlotte Lucas is less hot, like she's their plain friend. Now, Renee Zellweger is hot and it infuriates me to no end that she's like, I weigh 140 pounds. I'm like, please shut up. Don't talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But like, if we take that at face value as like that she is unsatisfied with her appearance and her general state in life, that's like a huge difference. Um, Again, Renee Zellweger is hot and this movie is hugely fat phobic and like the, the whole thing is not good. But like that being a plot line, first of all, trying to convince us that Renee Zellweger is not hot, but then like also making the Lizzie Bennett character feel like she's supposed to be frumpy. That was a huge diversion for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's a very <laughs> well said problem with this movie. I think this is something that's, that really puts a timestamp on the movie in a very significant way because the early 2000s were so defined by really like scarily thin celebrities the Kira Knightleys yeah that was that during the height of low rise jeans <sighs> every time someone younger than me is like low rise jeans like like they're coming back I'm like you don't understand get out. how hard we worked to get you out of them yeah <laughs> Never. I've got too much hip for low-rise jeans. Yeah, this is not happening. You know, one of the most infuriating parts of the movie was when she puts on the, like, scary tummy-holding-in granny panties, and they're, like, baggy on her butt. I'm like, what are these? (laughs) What are those? Oh, my gosh. Also, her tiny knickers are just not that tiny. Her tiny knickers are completely normal-sized knickers. Yeah. I mean, I guess you couldn't actually put Renee Zellweger in really small underwear on screen. Like, you would have just been staring at her bare ass running down the streets of London. So, like, you needed some coverage. Yeah. Yeah, that's valid. Fair. But I think uh, just 
to sort of put a cherry on top of the the whole marriage thing. I would defend this movie as far as its take on whether or not you need a boyfriend or a marriage, because I think this movie is saying you don't need to. It kind of backs away from that message when she gets together with Mark Darcy at the end. And as much as we love Mark Darcy, it's like we don't need a happy ending to end with a man. But I think that this movie is criticizing how we characterize women's lives as so defined by the men around them and trying to give us Bridget, a woman who was really steeped in that way of life, but also then showing us, hey, she actually, she's a wonderful friend. She is actually talented at her career. She's a good daughter. She's a good daughter. She's working really hard to keep her parents' marriage together. All these things about Bridget that end up defining her and forming her wholly, which is even what gives Mark Darcy the inspiration to like her very much, just as she is. And the whole scene at the couple's table is absolutely wild, but really highlights this whole Bridget doesn't need to be like one of these smug married couples. She is a person outside of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what Jane Austen in her own time was trying to say about women being these fully formed characters that have to exist in the structure that forces them to marriage. Right. But that they are so much more than that. So yeah, I agree. I think that it all wraps up really nicely with her using Daniel's own line against him when he said, you know, we're people of a certain age, we're looking for something more extraordinary. And then he comes back and he's like, you're the only person I can get with. And she's like, I'm looking for something more extraordinary than that. I'm like, yeah. And she's gonna, she's willing to wait for it. She's not going to settle for this douchebag. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that leads us to the end of this discussion of Bridget Jones' diary, which of course ends with some Becca study questions. So we're going to go through our standbys here. So what is everyone's least favorite moment in the movie? For me, it was all of the racism. Yes. Yeah. If I had to pick out a specific uh, instance, it's when they're in the elevator and Daniel grabs her ass while there's like another person there. And it's just like extremely awkward and non-consensual and creepy. And I hated it. Yeah. Made me cringe. Yep. Mm -hmm. That stuff was all very awful. Agree with both your picks. I'm going to add one. That just comes from a plot point of view. I just don't understand. Was Mark supposed to have gotten engaged and moved to New York and then given both of those up to date Bridget? Because I all in one week. <laughs> because I don't I don't understand the mechanics of that plot device. They should not have put him with Natasha. It doesn't make sense that he'd be fighting in the streets for Bridget one week and then like engaged to Natasha the next. And then not again. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it none of it makes any sense. So that that whole they should have just tugged that out. There was a different way to make Bridget feel awkward at that Christmas party and then also have him come back for her. It didn't need to be like, he's suddenly engaged in moving to New York, but he's going to give that all up for Bridget. Yeah, Natasha actually didn't really serve a purpose in this movie. She's there to be Caroline Bingley. She's there to make Bridget feel inferior. It's not not great. It's not done super well, yeah. Yeah. All right, favorite moment. My favorite moment, I've already said I really loved the moment with the chair on the wife's coat and then her friend is like, oh, <laughs> and they all laugh at him. Um, that was one of my favorite moments. Another favorite moment is when they're cooking dinner and the friends are about to arrive and Darcy and Bridget 
are like stirring and she says oh like we need to sieve the gravy and he says surely not just just stir a tuna and they're like making fun of her mom in the first scene that was chef's kiss it was like so casually stuck in there and so adorable loved that absolutely i love the fight scene i gotta give it to the fight scene also excellent (laughs) both wonderful moments i have to say just really quick side note we didn't talk about it much but the chemistry between Renee Zellwinger and Colin Firth is actually really great in this movie and I think it kind of makes it I'm gonna add my favorite moment being the moment when she says to Daniel what you're offering is not good enough for me I'm looking for something more extraordinary because I take that to be like the moment that kind of defines the film as uh getting rid of Daniel Cleavers in our lives. We all should. Yes. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yes. All right. Best line delivery. I have several. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to tell you all of them. Two of them are like, you already know, but one of them I think is a surprise. So my first is, no, I like you very much, just as you are. Excellent. Good work, Colin Firth. Another Colin Firth one. Nice boys don't kiss like that. Oh, yes, they fucking do. Excellent chef's kiss. And my third runner-up is Mrs. Jones saying, between you and me, I'm not entirely sure that Julian isn't a bit of a shit. (laughs) All great choices. That's good. That's good. I'm going to go with a really dumb one that just sort of stuck in my head and can't get it out is when she's getting ready to go to the book launch party and she's in her apartment in her underwear vacuuming and going Chechnya (laughs) Chechnya excellent Salmon also last fun fact I can drop here Salman Rushdie is friends with the woman who wrote Bridget Jones Diary so that's how they got him to cameo in the film oh that's funny love it so I think that oh yes we fucking do is my favorite. I am going to add another really dumb one, though, because it's when Bridget is out at dinner with uh, Daniel, and she's sitting at the table, and she's smoking, and she goes, what's going on in Chechnya? It's really horrible, isn't it? And he just goes, oh, couldn't give a fuck, Jones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even realize that that was a callback to what she was practicing with the vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> Chechnya. <laughs> oh, really good. So good. So good. So then who wins the movie? Well, I feel like I should say Bridget, but Colin Firth, like really, for me, just really call out Colin Firth to himself in this. Yeah, I feel I almost feel like it's a cop out to say Bridget, but I I think Bridget won because she she gained the power of self-love. She did. Uh, Yeah, I think both of those are great. I might have to give it to Colin Firth, though, because, oh, yes, we fucking do is one of the best <laughs> lines in a rom-com. So, yeah. I, Listen, you know, I, actor-wise, Colin Firth wins. Character-wise, Bridget Jones wins. And we can all definitively say that Renee Zellweger's accent coach loses. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. <laughs> all right. That concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Sequoia, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You can find me on Fanatical Fix and where to find them or on But Make It Scary anywhere pods are cast or on social media at Fanatical Fix, at But Make It Scary or at Sasquoia. Sasquoia. Ooh, I Sasquoia. love that. <laughs> 
Love it. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, listeners. And until next time, stay proper. And find yourself someone who will make you blue soup. (laughs) Wonderful. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.